0: Nicholas Nickleby, Chapter Sixty-Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Phillipone. Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens, Chapter Sixty-Two. Ralph makes one last appointment, and keeps it. Creeping from the house, and slinking off like a thief, groping with his hands when first he got into the street, as if he were a blind man, and looking often over his shoulder while he hurried away, as though he were followed in imagination or reality by someone anxious to question or detain him ralph nickleby left the city behind him and took the road to his own home the night was dark and a cold wind blew driving the clouds furiously and fast before it there was one black gloomy mass that seemed to follow him not hurrying in the wild chase with the others but lingering sullenly behind and gliding darkly and stealthily on he often looked back at this, and more than once stopped to let it pass over. But somehow, when he went forward again, it was still behind him, coming mournfully and slowly up like a shadowy funeral train. He had to pass a poor, mean burial-ground, a dismal place, raised a few feet above the level of the street, and parted from it by a low parapet wall and an iron railing. A rank unwholesome rotten spot, with the very grass and weeds seemed in their frowsy growth to tell that they had sprung from paupers' bodies, and had struck their roots in the graves of men, sodden while alive, in steaming courts and drunken hungry dens. And here, in truth, they lay, parted from the living by a little earth and a board or two, lay thick and close, corrupting in body as they had in mind, a dense and squalid crowd here they lay cheek by jowl with life no deeper down than the feet of the throng that passed there every day and piled high as their throats here they lay a grisly family all these dear departed brothers and sisters of the ruddy clergyman who did his task so speedily when they were hidden in the ground as he passed here, Ralph called to mind that he had been one of a jury long before on the body of a man who had cut his throat, and that he was buried in this place. He could not tell how he came to recollect it now, when he had so often passed and never thought about him, or how it was that he felt an interest in the circumstance, but he did both, and stopping and clasping the iron railings with his hands, looked eagerly in, wondering which might be his grave. While he was thus engaged, there came towards him, with noise of shouts and singing, some fellows full of drink, followed by others who were remonstrating with them and urging them to go home in quiet. They were in high good humour, and one of them, a little weazen humpbacked man, began to dance. He was a grotesque, fantastic figure, and the few bystanders laughed. Ralph himself was moved to mirth and echoed the laugh of one who stood near and who looked round in his face. When they had passed on, and he was left alone again, he resumed his speculation with a new kind of interest, for he recollected that the last person who had seen the suicide alive had left him very merry, and he remembered how strange he and the other jurors had thought that at the time. He could not fix upon the spot among such a heap of graves, but he conjured up a strong and vivid idea of the man himself and how he looked and what had led him to do it all of which he recalled with ease by dint of dwelling upon this theme he carried the impression with him when he went away as he remembered when a child to have had frequently before him the figure of some goblin he had once seen chalked upon a door but as he drew nearer and nearer home he forgot it again and began to think how very dull and solitary the house would be inside this feeling became so strong at last that when he reached his own door he could hardly make up his mind to turn the key and open it when he had done that and gone into the passage he felt as though to shut it again would be to shut out the world but he let it go and it closed with a loud noise there was no light how very dreary cold and still it was shivering from head to foot he made his way upstairs into the room where he had been last disturbed he had made a kind of compact with himself that he would not think of what had happened until he got home he was at home now and suffered himself to consider it his own child his own child he never doubted the tale he felt it was true knew it as well now as if he had been privy to it all along his own child and dead, too. Dying beside Nicholas, loving him, and looking upon him as something like an angel—that was the worst. They had all turned from him and deserted him in his very first need. Even money could not buy them now. Everything must come out, and everybody must know all. Here was the young lord dead, his companion abroad and beyond his reach, ten thousand pounds gone at one blow— his plot with gride overset at the very moment of triumph his after schemes discovered himself in danger the object of his persecution and nicholas's love his own wretched boy everything crumbled and fallen upon him and he beaten down beneath the ruins and grovelling in the dust if he had known his child to be alive if no deceit had been ever practised and he had grown up beneath his eye he might have been a careless, indifferent, rough, harsh father—like enough, he felt that—but the thought would come that he might have been otherwise, and that his son might have been a comfort to him, and they two happy together. He began to think now that his supposed death and his wife's flight had had some share in making him the morose, hard man he was. He seemed to remember a time when he was not quite so rough and obdurate— and almost thought that he had first hated nicholas because he was young and gallant and perhaps like the stripling who had brought dishonour and loss of fortune on his head but one tender thought or one of natural regret in his whirlwind of passion and remorse was as a drop of calm water in a stormy maddened sea his hatred of nicholas had been fed upon his own defeat nourished on his interference with his schemes fattened upon his old defiance and success there were reasons for its increase it had grown and strengthened gradually now it attained a height which was sheer wild lunacy that his of all others should have been the hands to rescue his miserable child that he should have been his protector and faithful friend that he should have shown him that love and tenderness which from the wretched moment of his birth he had never known that he should have taught him to hate his own parent and execrate his very name that he should now know and feel all this and triumph in the recollection was gall and madness to the usurer's heart the dead boy's love for Nicholas, and the attachment of Nicholas to him was insupportable agony. The picture of his deathbed with Nicholas at his side, tending and supporting him, and his breathing out his thanks and expiring in his arms, when he would have had them mortal enemies and hating each other to the last, drove him frantic. He gnashed his teeth and smote the air and looking wildly round with eyes which gleamed through the darkness cried aloud i am trampled down and ruined the wretch told me true the night has come is there no way to rob them of further triumph and spurn their mercy and compassion is there no devil to help me swiftly there glided again into his brain the figure he had raised that night it seemed to lie before him the head was covered now. So it was when he first saw it. The rigid, upturned, marble feet, too, he remembered well. Then came before him the pale and trembling relatives who had told their tale upon the inquest, the shrieks of women, the silent dread of men, the consternation and disquiet, the victory achieved by that heap of clay which, with one motion of its hand, had let out the life, and made this stir among them. He spoke no more but after a pause softly groped his way out of the room and up the echoing stairs up to the top to the front garret where he closed the door behind him and remained it was a mere lumber-room now but it yet contained an old dismantled bedstead the one on which his son had slept for no other had ever been there he avoided it hastily and sat down as far from it as he could the weakened glare of the lights in the street below shining through the window which had no blind or curtain to intercept it was enough to show the character of the room though not sufficient fully to reveal the various articles of lumber old corded trunks and broken furniture which were scattered about it had a shelving roof high in one part and at another descending almost to the floor it was towards the highest part that ralph directed his eyes and upon it he kept them fixed steadily for some minutes when he rose and dragging thither an old chest upon which he had been seated mounted on it and felt along the wall above his head with both hands at length they touched a large iron hook firmly driven into one of the beams at that moment he was interrupted by a loud knocking at the door below after a little hesitation, he opened the window and demanded who it was. "'I want Mr. Nickleby,' replied a voice. "'What with him?' "'That's not Mr. Nickleby's voice, surely,' was the rejoinder. It was not like it, but it was Ralph who spoke, and so he said. The voice made answer that the twin brothers wished to know whether the man whom he had seen that night was to be detained, and that although it was now midnight, they had sent in their anxiety to do right. "'Yes,' cried Ralph detain him till to-morrow. Then let them bring him here, him and my nephew, and come themselves, and be sure that I will be ready to receive them.' "'At what hour?' asked the voice. "'At any hour,' replied Ralph fiercely. "'In the afternoon, tell them, at any hour, at any minute. All times will be alike to me.' He listened to the man's retreating footsteps until the sound had passed, and then, gazing up into the sky, saw, or thought he saw, the same black cloud that had seemed to follow him home, and which now appeared to hover directly above the house. "'I know its meaning now,' he muttered, and the restless nights, the dreams, and why I have quailed of late, all pointed to this. Oh, if men by selling their own souls could ride rampant for a term, for how short a term would I barter mine to-night!' The sound of a deep bell came along the wind, one. "'Lie on,' cried the usurer, with your iron tongue. "'Ring merrily for bursts that make expectants rise, "'and marriages that are made in hell, "'and toll ruefully of the dead whose shoes are worn already. "'Call men to prayers who are godly because not found out, "'and ring chimes for the coming in of every year "'that brings this cursed world nearer to its end. "'No bell or book for me.' "'Throw me on a dung-hill and let me rot there to infect the air!' With a wild look around, in which frenzy, hatred and despair were horribly mingled, he shook his clenched hand at the sky above him, which was still dark and threatening, and closed the window. The rain and hail pattered against the glass. The chimneys quaked and rocked. The crazy casement rattled with the wind, as though an impatient hand inside were striving to burst it open but no hand was there, and it opened no more. "'How's this?' cried one. "'The gentlemen say they can't make anybody hear and have been trying these two hours.' "'And yet he came home last night,' said another, "'for he spoke to somebody out of that window upstairs.' There were a little knot of men, and the window being mentioned went out into the road to look up at it. This occasion their observing that the house was still close shut, as the housekeeper had said she had left it on the previous night, and led to a great many suggestions, which terminated in two or three of the boldest getting round to the back, and so entering by a window, while the others remained outside in impatient expectation. They looked into all the rooms below, opening the shutters as they went, to admit the fading light, and still finding nobody and everything quiet and in its place— doubted whether they should go farther. One man, however, remarking that they had not yet been into the garret, and that it was there he had been last seen, they agreed to look there too, and went up softly, for the mystery and silence made them timid. After they had stood for an instant on the landing, eyeing each other, he who had proposed their carrying the search so far, turned the handle of the door, and pushing it open, looked through the chink, and fell back directly. "'It's very odd,' he whispered. "'He's hiding behind the door. "'Look!' they pressed forward to see. "'But one among them, thrusting the others aside with a loud exclamation, "'drew a clasp knife from his pocket and, dashing into the room, cut down the body. "'He had torn a rope from one of the old trunks "'and hung himself on an iron hook immediately below the trap-door in the ceiling, "'in the very place to which the eyes of his son, a lonely, desolate little creature, had so often been directed in childish terror fourteen years before. End of Chapter 62